0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer from ABC's Radio National. Thanks for your company. Well, this week, Radio National is airing a series of the most important events during the past two decades and how they've affected the first part of this century. Here's my suggestion. The most significant and consequential event of the past 20 years was the horrific terrorist assault on the twin towers and the pentagon september 11
1: 2001.
0: I was just standing here watching the World Trade Center after the first after the first plane hit. I just saw a second plane come in from the south and hit the south tower, halfway between the, the bottom and the top of the tower. It's got to be a, a terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you anything more than that. I saw the plane hit the
1: building. Move it! Move it. Move it come on! We saw smoke coming out, and everybody started running out, and people were jumping out the windows.
0: We all know where we were and what we were doing that morning or evening on the Australian East Coast.
1: The once towering World Trade Center in New York's financial district is no more. It took two direct hits when. We all
0: United remember America, those America, radical America. Islamists striking at the symbols of our civilization. New York office buildings and the Pentagon, filled with workers at an early hour the deaths of 3,000 innocent people, mainly Americans.
2: can't even look at it, because all I can see are people. I don't see a building, I see people. People hurt.
0: Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda terror network, that was the culprit. But bin Laden's niece, Noor bin Laden, she's written movingly about the 9-11 anniversary, saying, quote, Not a day has gone by since this horrific, tragic day that I haven't thought of you, America, and grieved privately with you all for the innocent lives lost. Nor Bin Laden goes on to say, This is in part due to the inexplicable turn of fate that links me to those atrocious attacks, but more importantly because of my love for your country. The values and feelings I hold are diametrically opposed to the name that I bear. That's Noor Bin Laden, Osama Bin Laden's niece. Now the threat of Islamic terror was real, urgent and growing. And the attack on September 11 created pressure for immediate and drastic action. That American outrage, taken together with the notion of American exceptionalism, not to mention the mental habits of American global leadership since the end of the Cold War a decade earlier, all this gave US leaders a clear, overriding sense of purpose.
2: Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists.
0: Now, many historians say that a mature and experienced president might have been able to resist, modify or deflect the temptations of the moment. George W. Bush not only yielded to them, he gave them authoritative voice. And in his State of the Union address in early 2002, he targeted North Korea, Iraq and Iran.
2: States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world by seeking weapons of mass destruction these regimes pose a grave and growing danger and
0: so the bush doctrine was born preventive war democracy promotion and aggressive unilateralism president george w bush with strong backing from democrats such as hillary clinton and the foreign policy establishment, they believed the US could impose its will and leadership across the globe. One White House advisor remarked, we are an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. Thus, September 11 shifted the balance in favour of those who saw things in sweeping terms, away from prudence and modesty towards an ambitious and assertive use of US power topple tyrannical regimes and export democracy from Iraq to Afghanistan. Now it's true the counter-terror architecture erected by the Bush administration was effective insofar as that it ensured the US did not suffer another major attack. And there was success in the war on terror, most notably this news announced by President Barack Obama nearly a decade after 9-11.
1: Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda.
0: President Obama there. However, the foreign policy consequences of 9-11 meant that the US paid a profound price in blood, treasure, prestige, and credibility across the Persian Gulf, and a diminished respect for political leaders at home george bush made a mistake we so, can make mistakes but that one was a beauty we should have never been in iraq we have destabilized right. the middle east
1: you still think he should be in i think
0: it's my turn isn't it? you do whatever you want you call it whatever you want i want to tell you they lied okay. they said there were weapons of mass destruction there were none and they knew there were none there were no weapons of mass all right. destruction. okay all right as a result american politics have become more polarizing than ever and the American people are experiencing a crisis of confidence. Well, now to our panel on September 11, 2001, and the consequences of the horrific terrorist attacks on the US. Peter Jennings is the Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra, and Lydia Khalil is a research fellow at the Lowy Institute. Peter, Lydia, welcome back to Radio National.
1: Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Now, Peter,
0: let's start with you. Uh, where were you on September eleven?
1: I was in the Library of London Business School. Um, strangely enough, Tom, writing, uh, an article for the Royal United Services Institution mm-hmm. in London on the future of terrorism. Uh, and I had just completed writing it and saw uh, sort of in the corner of my eye, the image of the first tower uh, going down in, uh, in New York. So that's where I was and that will certainly stay in my, my mind forever.
0: Indeed. And, and did you think there and then that this would define the next era?
1: No, no, I didn't. Uh, And that article had to be rewritten pretty quickly (laughs) and pretty (laughs) dramatically, Tom. Uh, No, I I have certainly no sense of that. And Australia was still deeply engaged in uh, East Timor Mm stabilisation operation. That's where I thought um, our future defence focus would be. uh, Only, of course, then to see that, you know, the subsequent 20 years was very largely occupied with um, Iraq and Afghanistan, Uh, too big uh, and costly military operations. And frankly, no one um, in the first week of September back then would, would have imagined that that was a possibility.
0: Now, Lydia, you're originally from Boston, Massachusetts. What were you doing on that tragic day?
2: Well, I was in Boston, Massachusetts. It was my last year of university. I was sitting in my dorm room about to get ready to go to my international relations class and I had the television on in the background. Mm. And so, of course, I missed that class. I was fixated on what was happening um, on the screen. And um, interestingly enough, I had just come back from a summer internship with the State Department. They Hmm. do these internships uh, with university students. And at the time, I was at the US Embassy in Bahrain. And all through that summer, we were on heightened security alert because the intelligence um, officials there were getting a whole bunch of chatter about some sort of imminent attack all through August. And at the time, they were thinking that that attack was going to happen on US interests in the Middle East. So Hmm. for most of my internship, we were under heightened security with the embassy and with events surrounding that. And then little did we know what that chatter would lead to. It wasn't going to be against US interests in the Middle East or US uh, installations in the Middle East, but in fact on the homeland.
0: I'm the only one here who was in Australia at the time. I was in Sydney and I I had studied uh, American political history at the University of Sydney a decade earlier. And I I studied with an exchange student from California. The only time he could see me was over dinner with his business colleagues. And throughout the dinner, we started getting these text messages from people in the United States about a commercial airliner plunging into uh, the Twin Towers. And the rest is history. It was a very depressing night. Lydia, um, how do you think 9-11 changed America?
2: Oh, well, I, I think it changed it profoundly. I mean, not just the attack itself, of course, because we managed to bounce back um, after the attack and certainly, you know, have instituted a number of homeland security and national security measures that have made the country much safer. But I think it changed the country on a much more fundamental level because I think our responses— To the 9-11 attack through the global war on terror impacted our foreign policy stance. We've conducted foreign policy through the lens of counterterrorism, which distorted a lot of things. And in many ways, I believe it actually undermined not just democracy and belief in democracy in the United States, but globally because of the freedom agenda that was pursued under the Bush administration as a response to 9-11. So I think some of the excesses of the global war on terrorism, the failures of that freedom agenda have really impacted belief in democracy, the functioning of our democracy in ways I think that we're just starting to grapple with now in this era of democratic backsliding.
0: Well, following on from Lydia Peter Jennings, um, one senior White House advisor, and it was later to be revealed, Carl Rove, he remarked, quote, "'We are an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality.'" So the question here is, um, following on from Lydia, Peter, did America indulge in hubris after 9-11?
1: I think it failed to think through sensibly what it was actually doing when it went into uh, Afghanistan and Iraq in, in the way that it did. And I think, you know, one of the remarkable errors of judgment that was made at the time was simply to underestimate how long-term and how costly that type of military operation would be. There was way too much focus on the sort of quick strike, the shock and awe, and then the mission accomplished uh, speech for the president on board the aircraft carrier. What we all should have realised at the time was that we were engaging on something that was going to last for decades. And I think it has Shaped a lot of American policy in negative ways. Uh, it meant, for example, that America was underinvested in its policy focus on the Indo Pacific region and, and remained that way for, for years. Um, and frankly, it also broke large parts of the American military, particularly the Army and the Marine Corps. So, um, yes, I think there was an element of hubris, but, but perhaps even more simply than that, just poor quality strategic thinking. Which you know we we still live with the legacy of that today.
0: And is the failure here bipartisan, Lydia? I mean, obviously, the foreign policy doctrine after nine eleven became known as the Bush doctrine, uh, preventive war, democracy promotion. Uh, what many people believed was uh, aggressive unilateralism, but it did have strong backing from Democrats such as Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think the authorization um, to go to war was uh, was bipartisan. Bipartisan. I think it arose out of a a climate of fear um, after the 9 11 attacks, um, a climate of trying to address, I think, incorrectly the root causes of terrorism, where we thought that that a focus on trying to address the lack of freedoms and, and liberties and open societies, perhaps in the Middle East as incubators of extremism there as a root cause of terrorism, I think that that was misguided, but that was generally the consensus at the time among the bipartisan national security and foreign policy community i think as the war went on however you started to see more of a differentiation within the washington establishment and internationally between whether we should continue on with this effort how we draw back you know but at the time you know as colin powell said you break it you buy it yeah. and so there was still this this need to continue on and to carry on to kind of continually be fixing our initial error, the initial strategic mistake of the invasion of Iraq.
0: Well, in 2002 and 2003, there were some lone voices in America, uh, like Brent Scowcroft, who was National Security Advisor to the first President Bush, he recently died, and of course, the former Vice President who lost to George W. Bush in 2000, Al Gore. Their argument, Peter, was that The threat that Saddam posed could have been contained and deterred as it had been since the previous Gulf War. You know, no-fly zone, uh, sanctions regime, uh, the naval blockade. And if America took out Saddam Hussein, as Lydia said, you'd have to build this artificial state again. Uh, I think these were instinctively Colin Powell's warnings. On reflection, should the United States have contained Saddam rather than bring about a policy of regime change?
1: Yes, on reflection, I think that would have been more sensible and vastly less costly, And, and there had been a demonstrated example of the success of that over a number of previous years. You know, hindsight is uh, is a great strategic thinker, uh, Tom. There's no question about that. But in hindsight, yes, it would have been a smart thing for the US to have done.
0: But then again, Osama bin Laden is dead and the Sunni jihadists appear on the back foot across the Persian Gulf. Lydia, does that mean that the war on terror after 9-11, that's ultimately been won?
2: No, I don't think so. But I think it's, you know, even problematic to continue to frame this focus on the jihadist threat as the global war on terror, I think we kind of set ourselves for all sorts of traps and pitfalls if we continue along this paradigm of the global war on terrorism. I think we really need to to adjust our thinking about that. And I think the national security community is starting to do so. So instead we've recognized that jihadism is an enduring threat that we will have to face, and we'll have to face it outside of the rubric of the global war on terrorism in many cases. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer.
0: If you just tuned in, you're on Radio National. Great to have your company. And we're marking what we believe was the most significant event of the past 20 years, September 11. Now, my guests are Peter Jennings from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra and Lydia Khalil from the Lowy Institute. Now, let's turn to the Australian response to 9-11, The then Prime Minister, John Howard, he was in Washington on September 11, and this is what he promised, quote, Australia will provide all the support that might be requested of us by the US in relation to any action that might be taken. Now, Peter Jennings, this is a a strikingly unqualified commitment. Note the words all and any. Was it justified?
1: I think Howard did and said the right thing in Washington at at that moment, Tom. America was looking for its allies. It was looking actually for emotional support. Uh, I think if Howard had done anything less, appeared more qualified, uh, that would have had potentially some damage to the alliance relationship. Of course, it's a bigger question then to talk about the sense of the Australian response both at the time and then subsequently in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we can talk about that if you like. But I think Howard made the right call um, back then, given the the sort of sense of emotional shock that uh, the Americans and, frankly, the world was was facing at the time.
0: Lydia, what about Howard's response uh, made at the time when the nature of the U.S. response was completely unknown? Was it justified?
2: Well, I, I do agree with a bit with Peter that Howard's response was was mostly about alliance management, but also it was a very real shared understanding and feeling of the threat at the time. I think that both Australia and the United States, given their close relationship, given that they were both advanced Western democracies, viewed the threat that was evidenced through the 9 11 attack in a very similar way. So I could understand Howard's response at the time. But in hindsight, given that Australia and the United States are such close friends, you know, you actually would want more honest and measured advice and strategic direction from your friends. So I think it was a bit of a lost opportunity from Australia at that time, there could have been a potential, and of course it's a counterfactual, we never know, but given the close relationship between the two countries, if the response was slightly different, if it was more qualified or more measured, perhaps that might have changed the, the, the thinking around the foreign policy responses of the United States.
0: Yes, but the interventions in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and, and to a lesser extent the support for the downfall of the Assad regime in Syria... Um, They've led to all sorts of unintended consequences. It has consumed uh, a lot of the the resources and the intellectual capital in Washington and in Canberra over the best part of two decades. Uh, Peter Jennings, have these efforts against the jihadists since September 11, have they been a costly distraction from the challenges of a rising China?
1: Uh, Well, they've been costly, uh, and they were certainly a major focus of effort on the part of the Australian Defence Force for for the better part of a couple of decades. It has to be said, Tom, that uh, the ADF came out of that experience a much better defence force than went into it Mm -hmm. in terms of its quality of command and control, the quality of the systems, the weapons that they were operating. You know, for them, uh, we have a much better defence force as a result of it but you're really talking about the strategic level, the political level, Um, and there I think it it is fair to say that Australia was taking its eye off what for us was always going to be the main game, and that is the the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, Of course, you know, for most of those 20 years, we saw China in the Indo-Pacific as as an opportunity rather than a risk, Um, and so that was something that, you know, uh, from a defence perspective, we weren't actually looking at. I think it's only in the last half decade or so, we now begin to see more of the downside risk of engaging with China. But, you know, that's uh, that's the reality of the world that we've had to deal with. Um, it's very clear now that the government's number one strategic priority is the Indo-Pacific and no one has an appetite to go back to the Middle East in a military sense.
0: Yeah, as we've had on this program over the last few years, uh, scholars such as Hugh White from ANU, uh, former diplomats like uh, uh, John McCarthy, and they've really highlighted the folly of marching in foreign policy lockstep with Uncle Sam these are their words and they say uh, Lydia that the lesson of our uh, close ties with Washington post 9-11 is that we should be less reliant on the US particularly when it comes to a broader competition with China how would you respond to them
2: well to be honest with you Tom I have uh, I have a hard time kind of getting my head around that argument because I think that you know saying that Australia needs to lessen its re- reliance on the United States they're not factoring in all sorts of unintended consequences first of all you know Australian defense spending would have to be, go through the roof absent that strong alliance relationship um with the United States Australia just will not be capable of maintaining its current posture, its current security in the region and globally without that alliance. That's a fact. So I think that all of these arguments around we have to be lessening our reliance on the United States is a bit two-dimensional in my mind.
0: At the same time, distinguished journalists such as Paul Kelly writing in the Australian newspaper recently, Peter, he says, we, our leaders in Australia, have uh, misjudged this threat and we need to rebuild trust with Beijing. How would you respond to that?
1: I've I've no idea how we're going to do that at the moment. Um, And it seems to me that, frankly, the problem is is not that no one's picking up ministers' phone calls um, or that our talking points are insufficiently sensitive to Communist Party priorities. The problem is that China has embarked on a strategic course of action, which really leaves no room for a democracy like Australia to manage a happy relationship with Beijing. Um, And so I think we just have to accept that what's going to happen going forward is that we will continue to have tough relations with China. They will continue to want us to do things that we won't be prepared to do, Uh, like, for example, you know, hand over our future 5G communications network to Chinese companies. Um, And we'll just have to deal with the consequences of that fallout. In other words, there are some... Problems that can't be fixed by sort of nice diplomatic words. And, and I fear the relationship with China uh, is one of those for Australia for the foreseeable future.
0: Okay, finally, and very briefly, Lydia, your thoughts on Joe Biden's selections uh, for foreign policy?
2: Well, I think that the, uh, those that have already been announced, like um, Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan. So Blinken's the are-
0: Secretary of State and Sullivan's National Security Advisor.
1: National-
2: Yeah, that's correct. Um, And there have been a few others that have also been announced um, within the national security foreign policy team. Look, these are obviously very experienced, very smart individuals who can probably sleepwalk their way into this, into these appointments. And I think that that's smart in one sense, because there was a lot of uncertainty around the transition process. We didn't know what the Trump administration is going to do, what they will do. So I think having it in these kind of safe pair of hands is, is a smart move. At the same time, these officials kind of have been responsible and involved in foreign policy and national security decisions under the Obama administration that have been criticized. They've been self-critical about them. So I think one of the key things that we need to look out for in terms of how this team develops its policy is whether they've taken any lessons learned from their experiences working in past administrations, thinking about what they would do differently, and how they recognize that we're really in a much, much different national security and foreign policy landscape than we were, say, 10 years ago.
0: Well, Walter Russell Mead, the prominent American foreign affairs columnist who's been a guest on this program, uh, he wrote in the Wall Street Journal this week, quote, Joe Biden has turned to what Obama advisor Ben Rhodes famously called the blob, experienced foreign policy insiders who work comfortably within the key assumptions that have guided US foreign policy since the late 1940s. Peter Jennings, that would surely warm your heart.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, look, I think the risk of what we've seen here is that we'll get a kind of Obama-lite foreign policy, which I think most people would now say is not going to be adequate to the demands of uh, the world that we, we currently face. Things have moved on And frankly gotten a lot more difficult but I'm happy to celebrate the fact that what we have here is competent people who know their areas who are actually capable of reading the morning intelligence brief and that we'll have a president that is going to run a cabinet (laughs) as opposed to emote and send out tweets Um, and so anything has to be better than what we've just had for the last four years Peter,
0: Lydia thanks so much for being back on Radio National.
1: Thank you Tom.
2: You're welcome thanks Tom.
0: Peter Jennings is the executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra, and Lydia Khalil is a research fellow at the Lowy Institute. Finally, this week, President-elect Joe Biden selected as his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. Now, it's a very significant post that was once filled by foreign policy giants. We think of Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft, Zib Brzezinski. Now, as it happens, Jake was in Australia in 2017 as the Lowy Institute's Distinguished International Fellow. And while Jake was here, he delivered the Owen Harries Lecture for the Lowy Institute and he appeared as a guest on Between the Lines. Here's Jake Sullivan. This is June 2017. He's responding to some opinion polls that I put to him. Those polls showed growing doubts and anxieties in Asia about US staying power. There is always going to be this question about the United States. It's baked into the cake
3: of American engagement in the region, that people will have their concerns, their questions. At the end of the day, though, through all the ups and downs, the one constant is that when the United States is present, when we are supplying steady leadership, it works to the benefit not just of the United States, but all the countries of the region, including China. And I think that's the constant we need to focus on, not opinion polls in any given year.
0: Polls show that large pluralities of Americans have been in a foul mood for a long time, well before Trump became president, well before Barack Obama became president. Probably you go back to Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Polls have consistently showed that trust in institutions has been at record lows. A clear majority of Americans have thought their country is heading in the wrong direction. Irving Kristol, the founding father of American neoconservatism before he died a few years ago, uh, lamented. Quote, there are clear signs of rot and decay germinating in American society. Many experts think Washington is too polarising, partisan, dysfunctional. Question, are you an optimist or a pessimist about America? I'm a short-term pessimist and a long-term
3: optimist. (laughs) I'm a pessimist in in this immediate future, both because I think that Trump has had a very corrosive effect on our politics and is capitalizing on these trends that you were talking about that existed before he came along that he's reinforcing. But I'm a long-term optimist because I think that the United States does have the capacity for self-correction and reinvention and the capacity to figure out solutions to our big problems. But we should not sugarcoat those problems. The question of where balanced growth that strengthens rather than hollows out the middle class is going to come from in the future is a bedeviling question for us and for every advanced economy in the world. We don't have clear answers to that, but I believe in the capacity of the American people
0: to come up with them over time. That's Jake Sullivan, President-elect Biden's National Security Advisor, with me on this program in June 2017. Well, that's it for this week. And remember, if you'd like to download past episodes of the program, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or you can download the podcast via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Switzer from Between the Lines. It's always great to have your company. Hope you can tune in again next week.